Well, good evening. As you're taking your Bible and turning to Romans chapter 13, let me just remind you that tomorrow night we have our men's ministry, 7 p.m. If you're a man, you should be a part of that. I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, we're looking at uh, the New Testament, doing a New Testament survey, and we're going through, I believe tomorrow is Matthew and Mark, correct? There we go. Got a thumbs up in the back room. First one I've got today, so that's good. <clears throat> Romans chapter 13. And we're about to enter into what I hope becomes just a tremendously encouraging and then also challenging a study for us all over the next few weeks as we carefully consider this chapter and its implications. Uh, this chapter in front of us contains some of the most uh, specific and clearest New Testament teaching on the Christian's responsibility to civil authority. And that every Christian, no matter what form of government they live under, is under the command from the Lord to maintain a proper and useful and submissive relationship to that government for the sake of leading a peaceful life and having an effective witness for Christ in the culture. Now, we know that since COVID uh, came and entered into the world, everything has kind of radically changed in the world in which we live. And a little, uh, and more than likely, the, the new world and everything that's now a part of it is not going to go away anytime soon. And when COVID came, obviously the government intruded into the life of the church in ways not seen in the West, especially for a long time, if perhaps not ever. And we had to carefully think through how to respond to government, carefully thinking through what the Bible called us to do and understanding the biblical role of government. And very likely it seems that the past 200 years or so of unprecedented freedom that the church has enjoyed in the West is going to end. And the church is going to... Encounter increasing situations where we're going to have to make some very wise decisions, and again, on how much uh, government intrusion we're willing to accept into the church, and a proper understanding again what what is the biblical standard? What's the biblical standard, and when is it proper to disobey government in the light of our duty to obey God? So we have a great responsibility that requires us to uh, stop and think very carefully and very biblically on our relationship to government. And then also, I think, our role and responsibility in the world, especially as we see a secular world increasingly trying to press itself into the church. Uh, it's no longer even uh, covert. It's like right through the front door, right? Trying to conform us to its image. That's what the world's trying to do. So we need to think to these issues on a biblical uh, fashion. How do we respond to them? Well, what do we do when government begins to infringe upon the church and starts to take away our rights and tries to impose unbiblical standards upon us. What should we do and how should we react? How are we to think biblically about the role of government and the response of the Christian to uh, that government? So these are just some of the issues that uh, they're going to find unfolding for us here in this chapter amongst others. So I think it's going to be a tremendous study over the next few weeks. I don't know, it's going to be a few uh, as we try to carefully think through the text and understand the principles and to look how to apply those principles uh, in, into our life. So let's begin just by <clears throat> reading the chapter as a whole and then making some introductory comments uh, as uh, to the inclusion of this uh, portion in the book of Romans and then specifically why Paul, why Paul uh, addresses this issue in the context of the day, which I think is important, the context of the day in which he's writing. You'll be okay. It's only 14 verses, so it's not very long. But here we go. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed uh, will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit 
uh, uh, for this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, uh, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly in the day, not carousing in, uh, and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So again, as we come to the study in the book of uh, Romans, we, we find ourselves here at the beginning of the, uh, of the 13th chapter, and this is really a new subsection in the book. Uh, it, it's a new subsection, but also it's a, really a continuation of what Paul has been speaking about or looking at uh, since we entered into chapter 12, mainly the application of doctrine, right? The application of the, of the doctrine that the apostle has laid out in the first 11 chapters of the book, and specifically in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And as I've said previously, doctrine not only must be believed, but doctrine has to be lived out. We've got to put doctrine into practice. A doctrine has to be acted upon. Again, practice carried out in real life uh, uh, if we claim to, be, uh, claim to have true faith. If we've indeed been transformed by what we say we believe, uh, again, we have to live out the doctrine we say we believe in. So here again in chapter 13, as it was in chapter 12, we're going to see the apostle challenge us to again act in a manner worthy of who we say we are as those in Christ. And while the chapter again is relatively short, just 14 verses, it's just packed with uh, principles that really face real life problems. Uh, not only with uh, very real problems that the Christian people face at the time when Paul uh, wrote these words, but principles that I think really relate to us uh, as Christians here in the present time. So uh, it's, uh, again, the Word of God, so it's applicable to both times. Now, the chapter is divided up into three sections. Uh, first, there is the, this first seven verses in the section, and that deals with the attitudes and, and relationship Christians have to the state in which they live, the duty that we have, the responsibility that Christians have living in a world and then uh, living in the world and the responsibility we have to our government. Uh, second section is verses uh, 8 through 10, uh, that again, where the apostle takes up the, the Christian role of loving our neighbors. And then the third section is verses uh, 11 through 14, where Paul discusses the fact that we are Christians, or as Christians, we're strangers and aliens in the world. Uh, we, we, we belong to another world. We really belong to another realm that is about to come. And therefore, our conduct in this world must be proper in light of eternity uh, that awaits us. So that's a very high level very high level, high, quick flyover of the chapter. Three major sections. The first section, uh, perhaps the most controversial, if I can say it like that, because there are a lot of uh, commentators who come along and do pages and pages and pages, which I will save you uh, from. Uh, a lot of discussion amongst the commentators to whether these first seven verses ought to even belong here in the text, but I think they do. I think they fit very well within the context. Again, what Paul's been talking about. Again, you go back to chapter 12, and Paul's been talking about various relationships, how we act in these relationships once we come to believe the gospel. And, and because we've been justified by faith alone, therefore, how do we act? How, how do we live? What's our responsibility in light of the most wonderful truth that has been graciously revealed uh, to us? So first we saw, again, back in chapter 12, kind of reviewing, we, we saw that we have a certain responsibilities uh, towards God uh, because of God's mercy. Remember the top of the chapter of chapter 12, because of or in view of the mercies of God, we are to present ourselves, our entire life to him, right? And the entirety of our life to God is living holy sacrifices. Paul said, look, that's reasonable and that's a very logical response in the light of everything that God has done for us through Christ. And I really think we gotta, we gotta, want, we gotta ponder on that one a bit. We can't just read over top of it. We can't just blow through it and go, okay, give me the next stuff. But what does that look like in your life? As a reasoned response to the mercies of God in your life, how do you live your life? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. 
I do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, if you come to a knowledge of the truth, you come to an understanding of the gospel, it has to have implications in your life, real world uh, implications, because of God's mercies to you in Christ. How do you live in this world? And then we saw we have responsibilities to God, and then we saw as we continued on in the view of the mercies of God in our own lives, we have general responsibilities to each other in the body of Christ. God first, each other in the body of Christ. And part of, as part of God's uh, great redeemed body, the church, individually we're members of that body. We've been brought from death to life, and because of God's mercy and by His grace, we've been united to each other, right? We were, we're all forgiven sinners. We have a responsibility, therefore, how we treat each other. And again, the word was humility. You remember that? We're to walk in humility. We're to realize that each one of us in the body of Christ in the church, we're sinners saved by grace. There's no one in the body of Christ that's better than anyone else. Uh, as they say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are only in the church. Listen, we are only in the church because we are what? Sinners, right? We're sinners. We're sinners bought back, redeemed by a great Savior. That's the qualification to get in a club. You're a sinner, right? And, and you repent and you place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. You're the recipient of God's mercy as you realize that you need God's mercy. And because of God's mercy to you in Christ, you are to treat each other. We're to treat each other in the body of Christ with humility. And what else we do? Sit in the pew and not be involved? No, the answer is we are to serve, right? We have all been given certain gifts that we are to use in the service of others, building each other up in love. We also saw because of the mercies of God presented to us through the person of Christ, we have a responsibility to those who are Christians, next level out, right? Remember the little circle analogy, middle one, next one, next level out, right? Kind of like a bullseye going out. We have a responsibility to those who are not Christians. We have a responsibility to those who treat us well and those who treat us poorly. In fact, because of the mercies of God towards us in Christ, we saw that we even have a responsibility towards those who do us evil. Because of God's mercies to us in Christ, we are called to be at peace with all men as far as it's possible or as far as it depends upon us. Now, as I said, when we went through that section, I said sometimes certain people make that impossible, certain men uh, make that impossible, but we're not to be the cause of the trouble. We're not to take our own vengeance. We're to leave room for God, for God's vengeance. We're not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. Now, here in chapter 13... Apostle Paul, I think, is just really carrying on that picture, that line of thinking, the responsibilities that we have because of God's mercies to us in Christ. And again, we have certain responsibilities because we have understood the gospel and we have been saved by grace. So again, in the first seven verses of the chapter, he's going to tell us what our responsibilities are towards government. How are we as Christians to relate to government's authority? How are we to understand the role of the state in human affairs? So again, I think the first seven verses fit very well in, in the overall theme and the flow of the apostles' argument. Again, he's calling us to live out the doctrine we say we believe. And he's challenging us in, in these first seven verses as, as Christian believers to really be the very best citizens that we can possibly be in the entire kingdom, right? As Christians, we should be the best citizens in the kingdom of men. And he wants us to use this uh, seven verses to understand the reason for government. He wants us to see that government has been ordained by God, that government doesn't exist except by God's decree. The government exists for the good of the people. The government is for the protection of the people, for their well-being, to make sure that chaos doesn't break out, that evil men do not go unchecked and unpunished. For government and the rulers who serve in that government really serve as ministers of God carrying out justice and restraining evil. So here in the first seven of the verses the, of the chapter, the apostles' teaching, he's trying to, again, encourage us to continue to carry out, work out our doctrine, and work out the relationship to those around us in the world who are most definitely outside the church. So again, the question is, how do we react to the state? How do we react and interact with the government? Now, why did Paul see the need to interject this topic uh, here in, in this book at this moment, this to address this issue. Uh, uh, why has he written these verses on the Christian and government? Well, well, I think he does it and so because there's an issue he's trying to uh, address. There's some problems, some specific issues that are going on here in the church at Rome that Paul 
feels he has to address. Now, you realize that the Christians here at Rome were not all Gentiles, right? Some were Jew, uh, Jewish believers. Jewish believers among them, that's why he spends three chapters, right? 9, 10, and 11, dealing with the issue of Israel and Israel's future in God's economy. There were Jews in this church that had been converted to Christianity along with Gentiles, and you may or may not be aware of this, but the Jewish people uh, have a great uh, problem, if I can put it that way, a great problem throughout their history, and namely the problem of nationalism. I don't want to sound un unkind in any, any fashion, but I think the overall teaching of the Scripture and the overall teaching of history is the Jewish people have been notoriously bad citizens under whomever they've been ruling over top of them. Right? They, they've been notoriously bad citizens. Uh, they, they're zealous as a people. And they're zealous for their own identity, for their own nationality, for their own independence, and, and for their own religion. In, in and of itself, that, that's not wrong, uh, but we just need to understand the as a result of this nationalism and this overzealous pride that they uh, felt, they constantly rebelled everywhere. And they constantly rebelled here in the context under the authority of Rome. Uh, the Jews don't like, the Jews never liked being under the authority of anyone. Therefore, when they're under the occupation of the Romans, under the dominion of the, uh, of the Romans, they're great rebels, right? They were that way, though, and when they're under the dominion of the Greeks and under the dominion of the Medo-Persians and under the dominion of the Babylonians and under the dominion of the Egyptians. I mean, nothing has changed, right? It's interesting. Think back to the book of John. John chapter 8, verse 32. Christ is speaking to the Pharisees. And listen to this comment. He says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and they answered, verse 33, uh, John 8, verse 33, they answered to him, we are Abraham's offspring. Listen, we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we shall become free? Isn't that interesting? We've never been enslaved to anyone. I mean, these people have a, have a history of being enslaved to everyone, right? And there was only a short amount of time that they ever had their independence, right? But I think that statement kind of opens up a picture into understanding the mindset that even that they have now, even under Roman domination, uh, domination. They, they have a very short memory of where they have come from or where they were or how things were. And they have in particular are very blind to how things are presently at, at the current situation. Again, they've been under the dominion of other uh, countries uh, externally, uh, all of basically all of their history. Uh, but they're in, in their hearts, they've never been dominated by anyone. So there's this issue of, of, of nationalism. There's this issue of pride and zealousness for freedom and independence as a people. You say, okay, very well, very well. So, but how does that work here in the book of Romans? How is that bit of information helpful? Well, here, these Jewish believers in the church at Rome, they have a great issue as a people. Again, this issue of nationalism. And it's partly based on their pride, but it's also honestly partly based on Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 15 says, You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as a king over yourself you, that you, you may not uh, put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. So for the Jews, uh, a ruler of the Jews was always to be a Jew. Uh, that was a, a divine command that could never be a, uh, that could never be a foreigner. So for them to have a king over them uh, uh, that was not Jewish, such as Herod or a ruler like Pilate or Caesar or whoever, honestly, that to some extent felt in their heart like they really were sinning against God because they were uh, acknowledging a ruler who was not one of them. So they're sinning against God by violating Scripture. And, and you see that again played out amongst the Jews again here at the time of the Roman domination because there's a group of men called the Zealots. And they believe, again, they have no king but God. And they're not going to pay taxes to the Romans. Therefore, they, divide the, they defied the government every way possible and, and would not submit to it. Instead, they embarked on a series of violent actions against the government, murdering and assassinating uh, government officials trying to revolt uh, against Rome's authority. So Jews uh, become converted to Christianity, and Paul needs to address these converts on how they should react to the government authorities over them because they're still carrying this kind of leftover cultural baggage, if you will, this Jewish heritage in the back of their minds. 
In addition to that, I think the Jews as a whole had a completely wrong conception of Messiah because of this background, perhaps. They believed that the Messiah would be some kind of political military leader who would free them from their physical oppressors. Therefore, because they had a wrong idea of who the Messiah was as a whole, the Jewish people miss Christ, obviously, and they crucify him. Now, you can see that there's some very real-life issues that need to be dealt with, some real instructions that needs to be given to the Jewish Christians here at the Church of Rome. But not only that, there seems to be, I think for all of us, a real difficulty uh, in general understanding the relationship we have to uh, what people have turned, which I think is good, natural relationships. There, there's a real difficulty. Okay, the, the Jewish, Rome's got a, Jewish uh, Roman church members have a certain problem in, in their heritage. But for all of us, I, I think there, there's a difficulty understanding Christianity in the light of, again, the term is natural relationships. How, how do we react once we come to faith in Christ, to human natural, uh, natural human relationships. Uh, how do these relationships, how do we interact with them? Do they go away? Do they dissolve? Right? Uh, you, you get Paul, he's got a statement that he makes to the Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from whom we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So does that mean that we no longer uh, recognize any country or human ruler over us? Since we, as, we are citizens of another kingdom, spiritual beings awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, should we, because we are citizens, uh, uh, our citizenship is in heaven, should we no longer recognize human government authority over us? Should we no longer recognize the United States as having a unique kind of power over us as believers in Christ? So again, this struggle and this issue has really been played out in a variety of different fashions throughout the history of the church where men have advocated actually because now you come to faith in Christ, let's all pull out. Let's pull out from the government. Let's rebel against it. Let's refuse to pay our taxes. That not only has happened historically in the church, but there are still people today that certain groups of people isolate themselves from the culture because they say they're followers of Christ and they refuse or advocate the refusal of paying taxes to the government, which is only going to get you in what? A whole lot of trouble. Right? It's only going to get you in a whole lot of trouble. Right? So you've got to think about this. You've got to understand the biblical principles and apply them properly. Uh, some people have come along in the history of the church and they've misunderstood statements such as Galatians 3.28, where Paul says there's neither Jew or Greek, there's neither slave or free or man, or neither male or female, or we're, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So some have taken that to the extreme. They've gone as far as saying, well, you know, uh, once you come to Christ, it's it. It's over. There's no distinctions anywhere. No distinctions between Christian people. No distinctions between male and female. There's some, some have promoted today, I mean especially, uh, who become feminists, teaching it's okay for women to hold positions of authority over men. It's okay to have women pastors, women preachers. That's everywhere, folks. I don't know if you pay attention to the quote-unquote church in general, but that's everywhere. Some have taken it to mean that there's no differences whatsoever with respect to male and female, uh, hu husbands and wife. And we're not talking just in the culture, but even within the church. So there's some very real life issues, practical issues, practical problems that need to be worked out once you come to faith in Christ. Again, what happens to all these other relationships, natural, natural relationships around us? And it's always been a problem in the church. It's still a problem today. Again, uh, you see Paul addresses this issue in the New Testament, not just in the book of Romans, but you see he addresses it in other places in Scripture. What about the relationship between a parent and child? When a parent is a Christian and then a child comes to faith in Christ, does that end the natural distinction, the natural division between the child and the parent? Are, are they all erased? What about masters and slaves? Masters and servants? If a master has a slave and that, that uh, a slave comes to Christ, should that relationship end? You know, should, should the master free the slave? Should the slave re rebel against his master and demand his freedom? So again, real-life issues, real-world problems that have to be dealt with, had to be dealt with in the early church, and again, there's application today. And so you see the Apostle Paul addressing these kind of issues throughout the New Testament, issues of children and parents and husbands and wives, masters and slaves. And again, you see that carried out in chapter 5 and 6 of the book of Ephesians. So real practical, tangible issues that are going on that people need to think rightly once you come to faith in Christ, again, in these so-called natural 
relationships. In fact, at the end of uh, chapter 13, there's another little statement there in verse 11, or close to the end. He says, and this do, knowing the time, that it, the hour is already at hand, or already the hour is for you to awaken from sleep, for salvation is now nearer than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. So there are certain people who have taken, again, that portion of Scripture to the extreme. They say, well, you know, since the, cert- the return of Christ could be at any moment, maybe we shouldn't work. Let's just stop working. The return of Christ is imminent, so let's just go stand in the backyard and look up. I mean, you think that's crazy, but that probably is crazy, but that's what people have taught. That's what people have promoted. Stop working, withdraw from the world. Uh, just look up to the, to, to the sky until uh, Christ returns. Now, those and many other issues are addressed here in, in this chapter. But again, predominantly the first seven verses deal with the issue of government. How does the Christian relate to government? What responsibility do we have to the government? And we need to do our best to try to think about this biblically, not just culturally. Okay, here's the quiz. I've done it to you a number of times. In your mind's eye, think very difficult. Right now, when you look at a map at the world of the world, what's the first thing you see in the middle of the map? Answer. Proper answer. Israel. But isn't it true... The real answer in the back of your brain was that when I look at it, when I think in my mind's eye of the world and I see a map in my mind's eye, the first thing I think is the United States because that's what we have been taught, that everything begins and ends with us in the West. And we're very thankful for the United States and very thankful God's put us here. But if we're going to think as biblical Christians, the first thing that should come into your mind, the first picture should be the nation of Israel because Israel and the Jews are the prominent issue in the history of mankind. All the way through all the way in the future, all the way in the end, till their Messiah comes back, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, their king, right? So how do we think biblically, not just culturally? So we need to try to understand government and the issue from the text of Scripture to see it through the lens of how it was first written in, in the first century when, when Paul first penned the words. How, how do we deal with unbiblical rulers? What do we do about dishonest politicians who betray our trust? I have no idea what we could be thinking about asking that question, right? How do we deal with dishonest politicians? I mean, are there any honest politicians who are worthy of our trust? I don't know. How do you deal with that? What's our responsibility to them? Do we have a responsibility uh, to obey unconditionally those who rule over us? Are there any rules or limits on our subjection to the earthly rulers over us? So again, we've got to think those questions through very seriously. Uh, because listen to me, an unbelieving world is always watching us. An unbelieving world is always watching. And, they want, and we always need to live in a fashion that is helpful and not hurtful to the gospel. Unbelieving world is always watching us. We have to live in a fashion that's helpful, not harmful or hurtful to the gospel. What's the role of government biblically? When should we refuse to obey earthly rulers? I mean, should we join the re- revolution? Should we just, or should we just blindly obey? Again, kind of, all these kinds of questions have to be asked, these and many others, and ha- they all have to be dealt with, uh, dealt with biblically answered very carefully. Again, what's the Christian's responsibility to government? We need to think on it biblically with great clarity and great biblical precision. And I think part of the overall discussion is what is our, as believers, what is our relationship to the world around us? We are in the world, but not of the world. But we actually are where? In the world. What does that mean? We're in the world, but not of the world. And I think maybe sometimes we take that statement, we're in the world, but not of the world, maybe we take it to too great of an extreme, and we're too much into separation. It's very interesting, a very interesting historical fact, the Roman historian Tacitus claimed, it's just his claim, but he claimed that Nero executed Christians not because of their religious beliefs, listen to this, but because of their quote-unquote hatred of the human race. Nero, Tacitus said, Nero executed Christians not because of their religious beliefs, but because of their hatred of the human race. He said it was their aloofness, their aloofness, their, their disdain for the common way of life, their failure to get involved in the system. Because they were distinct. And because they were distinct, they'd seen, they, they were seen as unkind and unloving and, and insensitive to the needs of the world around them. And that caused them problems. 
So again, I think we really need to think carefully about our responsibility to those we are called to be light and salt, right? We're called light of the world, salt of the earth. We need to evaluate our responsibility. There has to be a balance there in that issue concerning being involved in the world but not being of the world, right? And not being involved whatsoever in a balance. Again, we're, we've been left in the world to be what? We've been left in the world to be Christ's ambassadors, right? We're ambassadors of Christ. We represent Him. So I think that's really part of the discussion, right? I think that's part of, our, uh, part of the discussion here when understanding the role of government and our response to it is uh, wh- what is our interaction with the world? And, and also, I, I think, our, our understanding of what has God called us as the church to do in the world, uh, especially, again, in the light of the context of the last few years with the whole advent of the social justice movement that has just uh, inundated the church uh, on a whole. Did God leave us in the world to change the world? Did God leave us in the world to change the way the world does things presently? Has God left us as the church in the world to set things right? Has God left us here to correct all social wrongs? Has God left us here to bring justice here on the earth uh, in time? Now, obviously, a lot of people in church today write lots of books and give lots of seminars and say yes to all of those things. Uh, A lot of people trying to bring the kingdom of God to this world now through political legislation. Many people spending their time and money and energy on politics. Many people believing that it's their responsibility to correct all social wrongs, spending their time protesting and kneeling. Failing somehow to understand from a biblical perspective that in the time in which the person of the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, what kind of world was it then? Well, it was a terrible world. It was a world full of slavery. It was a world full of all kinds of perversion and evil and debauchery and sin. And it was also a, rule, a world of rulers, absolute rulers, absolute uh, monarchs, despots, uh, evil men who had absolute authority and power over all other men. There was no such thing as democracy in the world in which Jesus entered into. It was one man who ruled over all. So again, in that world that Christ incarnated himself into, where slavery flourished in the Roman Empire, it was a world not only of slavery, but it was a world of high taxes, uh, taxes to the point that they were often unfair. Uh, Again, it was a world of persecution. I find it very interesting biblically that Christ's response to the situation was not to try to overturn the wrong of the society. He was not a societal justice warrior. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't protest. He didn't seek to enact legislation to change the way things were going on. Uh, He he didn't kneel down. And he didn't apologize for all the injustices that he was not a part of in order to assuage his conscience. Because these kind of things were not his primary concern. His concern was not government. His concern was not societal. His concern was not social justice or the culture. Uh, His concern was not, again, solving all the social perversions that really demonstrate itself as a result of a fallen heart. His concern was what? His concern was the gospel. His concern was the gospel of grace. The gospel was his issue. And he came into this world, he incarnated himself, and he preached the gospel. He, he preached and proclaimed the, the gospel to secure, to secure the salvation of the lost. Again, he left the glory of heaven, he put on flesh, he incarnates himself, and he comes to declare the gospel. He came because he was concerned that each man and woman might have an opportunity to know him personally, to have their sin forgiven, to be reconciled with God, to be put in a right relationship with God, uh, their relationship with God restored through, again, his sacrificial, substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection. That was his purpose in the world. He came to seek and save the lost. And that's the purpose of the church in the world today as Christ's ambassadors. Uh, we, we represent Christ in his interests. So again, if we wear the name Christ or Christian, uh, we have to be concerned with what most concerned him. And what most concerned him was the souls of men, not the conditions of the culture, not the conditions of the government, not politics or politicians. Again, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.20, that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. That's the message, right? The, the, an ambassador is somebody who represents a sovereign. And, and as a, someone who represents a sovereign, they don't represent their own opinion, they represent the opinion of the sovereign. 
right? The agenda of the sovereign. So God has left us in the world as Christians to represent Christ, uh, to declare the interests of our sovereign, which is the gospel. And here's the message uh, God entreats to us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled unto him. Because again, if he leaves us to be the uh, um, representatives of the gospel, to declare the gospel, again, it's somewhat self-evident. We're the only people in the world, the church, we're the only people who understand the gospel, right? We're the only ones that can de declare the truth about God's holiness and man's sinfulness. We're the only ones who can declare the sinfulness of the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who again has been given by God's grace and love to be the substitute, to be the sin bearer, as the holy God must punish sin. And men will never come to knowledge of the truth on their own. Somebody has to tell them the truth. Somebody has to reveal the truth to them. And that's us. That's the church. That's the body of Christ. We therefore have to have an, 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 an eternal perspective on why we're in the world and not of the world. Again, people have certain political values, political views, and irrespective of their political uh, party or their position, the truth is all men need Christ. All men need Christ. The truth is that forgiveness of sin and salvation is found only in that person, the person of Jesus Christ. And again, that's why God has left us as the church in the world to declare that truth. The moment, listen to me, the moment we forget the gospel, the moment we forget the gospel for some other issue, some other cause, or some other issue, or some other cause becomes more important than the gospel, then we're off track. We're off track. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, he states that human beings live forever, but the state is only temporal. Human beings live forever, the state is only temporal. Right? The state, the government, which we live under, is comparatively uh, insignificant to the issues of eternity. Lewis said this. He said, to spend your time attempting to alter the state when you could be offering people eternal salvation is a bad bargain. And I'm going to add to it. To spend your time attempting to alter the state or any other issue in the culture or in the world when you could be offering people eternal salvation is a bad bargain. To abandon the message that God gives life to the eternal soul in favor of temporal change prostitutes the purpose of the believer's life. That would be like a heart surgeon abandoning his life-saving practice to become a makeup artist. The church needs to use all its power and resources to bring men and women to Jesus Christ because that's what God has called the church to do. That's a great statement. And far too often, I believe, far too often, we as Christians tend to focus on the symptoms of the disease and not the disease itself. All the corruption, all the perversion, all the evil in this culture all have to do with the disease of the fallen human heart. And the disease of the fallen human heart can only be cured by the gospel. Therefore, if we ever want to see change, real change take place in the nation, in a society, in the world in general, that change only takes place by men's hearts being changed one person at a time, where men and women see their desperate need of the person of Jesus Christ. And again, for us to abandon the message of the gospel that alone gives life to the eternal soul in favor of any kind of temporal change or temporal cultural issue is to prostitute the purpose of our lives. And I think the scripture backs that statement up. Revelation 1.6. He made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. God has made us as the church to be a kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom of politicians. Not a kingdom of protesters. Not, not, not a kingdom of social justice warriors, but a kingdom of priests with the purpose of bringing men to God. Because that's what priests do. Stop and think about the picture in the Old Testament. What does the priest do? The priest stands as an intercessor and in between, between God and man. That's the priest. And it's only the message proclaimed by a kingdom of priests, it's only the message of reconciliation and forgiveness in the gospel that allows men to have reconciliation with this God whom they have offended because of their sin. And, and I said it this morning in, in the most simplest fashion to break it down. What is the gospel? Here it is. God is holy, and in his infinite kindness, he's willing to forgive your sin if you will repent and place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest good news that any, any, any person could ever hear. God's holy. 
we're sinful. God in his kindness is willing to forgive your sin if you repent and place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing beyond that. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing that solves man's problem except that one statement, that one truth, the gospel. The gospel is the, is the hope of the world. It's the, it takes us to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, one more introductory statement before we get to the actual text here that I think we have to have in our, in our back of our mind as we try to understand the issue of government is the fact of the church in the world, right, being this intermediary that God has left, has his ambassadors, but the church in the world, I think this is important, Paul says, uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the what? Truth. All right, the pillar and support of the truth. We are the only ones who know the truth. Therefore, as the only ones who know the truth, we're the ones who must hold truth on high. The world doesn't know God. The world doesn't know Christ. It's our responsibility to be truth-tellers. So again, the purpose of Christ in the world is to seek and save the lost, and that's the purpose of Christ's church in the world as well. To go into the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching every man to obey Jesus Christ and to obey him in all things that he taught. Human beings live forever. The state is only what? Temporal. So again, to attempt to spend your time trying to alter the state when you could be offering people eternal salvation is a bad bargain. To abandon the message that gives life to the eternal soul in favor of any kind of temporal change prostitutes the purpose of the believer's life. So again, if we're going to bear the name of Christ, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we have to be concerned with what most concerned him, and what most concerned him must concern us mostly, right? What most concerned him must most, most concern us. And it's the issues of men's souls that occupied the preeminent place in the life of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the souls of men have to occupy the preeminent place in our minds as we represent him in a world, right? in this world, a world full of lost souls. Not legislative efforts, not social movements, not trying to bring in some kind of new society to a fallen world, because it's only the gospel that can do that. Our message, again, is very simple. God in his kindness is willing to forgive your sin if you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. No, I said it this morning, right? We spend way too much of our time chasing rabbits. Spend way too much. We're to give a, a reasoned answer for the hope that is in us. We're not to convict and convert and change the world. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Again, all men know there's a God. All men know there's a God. Number two, all men in their sin suppress that truth and unrighteousness. That's Romans 1. So in love, as representatives of Christ, who's coming to the world because he has a love for the lost souls of men, as representatives of Christ and also as truth-tellers, we just tell the truth. We just tell the truth. We, 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 I don't see where we're called to argue with the sinner. We're to declare the truth to them, the hope that Christ offers. The same hope that he offered to us is a hope that he offers to all men who will repent and place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, a willingness to forgive your sin. Because God doesn't have to forgive your sin. Right? I mean, that, that's such great good news. The gospel is great good news. God doesn't have to. He's holy. He could just blot you out the moment you take a breath in his universe. But he's willing to forgive your sin. That's good news. And then you pray that God in his kindness would open the heart of the person that you're dealing with, that they would understand that great good news. Because that's exactly what it is. You tell them the truth. All right? Now, let's begin to look at the text. Let every person, verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So the starting point with Paul's argument, the first phrase, let every person or let everyone, literally reads every soul, let every soul submit themselves to governing authorities. Why is that, Paul? He says, because or for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Let every soul submit themselves to the governing authorities because there's no authority except that which God has established and it exists because of God's doing. You could say it that way. So when it comes to the issue of government and our response to it, as Christians, the very first principle we must understand is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God alone is sovereign over the affairs of men. 
And he is the one who has established all authority. He is the sovereign over the rulers of men, whether these earthly rulers be good or evil. And we'll address our limits uh, to uh, uh, the issue of obedience to earthly rulers at some time later, but that's not the issue here to begin with. The issue is that government, either good or bad, is still ordained by God. Now, while God does not create evil, you certainly see that through the text of Scripture and the history that he has used evil men to further his good purposes in this world. I mean, isn't that what Paul's already said in the context of the book of Romans, back in Romans 9? Talks about Pharaoh, right? God raised Pharaoh up for specific purposes. Why? To display his power through him. Pharaoh, who is he? Well, he's an ungodly man. He's a man who refused to bow the knee in time to the true and living God. Yet God raised up this wicked, evil man that he might display his wrath in judging him. God raised up this wicked, evil man who refused to bow the knee to the person of God in time in order that God might display that he again is the true and the living God. He's the real God. He's the real sovereign in the world. He's the real sovereign over the affairs of mankind, not Pharaoh and nor the false gods that Egypt worshipped as all the plagues are a direct attack on the false deities of the nation of Israel. We could go on, right? We could speak about Nebuchadnezzar. We understand him from history. Another evil man that God used, and God used them to do what? To conquer his own people. Tear down the temple, take the people off into the, in the captivity because of their rebellion against him. Right? God uses whoever he wants to use because he's the sovereign. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Again, issue number one, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Therefore, all authority comes from him. Again, there is therefore no authority, right? There's no authority except from God. You go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. That's a foundational issue for understanding the fundamental reality of God's ultimate authority, God's ultimate power. Therefore, all earthly authority is really delegated authority. It comes from God to other men, to men, right? All authority is delegated from God. Uh, uh, again, a delegated authority. No man is autonomous, meaning that no man is his own ruler. Uh, no man can do his own thing because there's a God in heaven, an ultimate being who is the ultimate ruler. Likewise, civil government is not autonomous. Civil government is under the stewardship responsibility of God. They are earthly rulers who are accountable to God. They are servants, uh, servants of God. Uh, again, uh, verse 4 here, Paul says the earthly government is a minister of God for your good. And the word minister is diakonos. We get our English word deacon, right? Earthly government is a deacon of God, a minister of God, a servant of God. All earthly rulers are deacons, again, of God. They fall into that category servants that are accountable to a master. Therefore, they must govern by God's standard, by the, by the word of God. You say, well, well, you know what? There's a whole lot of rulers in the world who don't do that. Perhaps the vast majority of them don't do that. They don't govern by the word of God. They don't understand that their, their power, their authority is delegated. They don't understand they're actually accountable to the most high God, who is the creator, uh, God himself. And, and you're right, they don't. And again, that's why we're here as the church. We are the pillar and the support of the truth. We're entrusted with the truth to remind them of their duty, to remind them of their responsibilities, to remind them the fact that there is a righteous, holy God to whom all men are accountable, including them. And again, unless they repent and have their sins covered by the blood of Christ, they'll spend eternity in hell. That's the truth. That's the truth, the true truth. Both rulers and those who rule over them are accountable to God. And we would be unloving if we did not remind them or tell them the truth or warn them of that reality. God is, in fact, king over the whole world. He's not just Lord of the church. He's the king over the whole world. He is Lord of the church, that's true, but he's the Lord over the entire world. He is the supreme king. Therefore, since that is the truth, since God is the king of the world, all people and all civil authorities are really under his rule. There is no authority except from God, 
and these which exist are established by God. So again, God is the ultimate authority. And all men and all rules, all civil government, all uh, civil authorities, therefore, are under God's ultimate authority, to which they're going to be held accountable. Now, in the olden days, when we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance, which some of you younger people can look up somewhere online and, and, and uh, get an understanding of what that is, we, there used to be a phrase in there where we said what? One nation under God. That, that was a kind of a commonality that said everybody, including the civil magistrates, civil authorities, are under God. Everyone operates under the instruction of God, under God who's over them. Again, civil governments, not civil governors, are not uh, to govern according to their own whims or their own desires of their fallen conscience. They're accountable to God. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So again, that means that earthly rulers have been put in the position by God himself. They are his servants. Again, verse 4 says they're ministers. Verse 6, ministers of God, verse 6 says they're servants. And again, Paul is not servants of God. Paul's not talking about some vague deity. He's talking about the uh, writing of the church of Rome. He's about, talking about the truth of the living God, the God of the Bible. Triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Governing authorities are ministers of God, servants of God. They must do what God says. They must do what Christ says. They're responsible to obey him on a personal level. They're particularly accountable to execute their public office on how Christ would have them do so. So again, earthly, uh, earthly rulers as ministers of God have a delegated authority. They have a responsibility to obey the one whom they have received that authority from. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So again, they don't have the freedom to rebel against the king, right? All men, even earthly rulers, are accountable to God, accountable to Christ. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, let every person, pasuke, or every soul, let every soul be in subjection to the governing authorities. It's in the emphatic position in the sentence, which means that Paul, uh, Apostle Paul is regarding this as very important. Every soul basically is a Hebrewism. Uh, it's a figure of speech in the Hebrew language. We would not say every soul. We'd probably say in the English vernacular, everyone. This applies to everyone. So because this applies to everyone, the point is there are no what? No exceptions. There are no exceptions. This applies to everyone. So in the context of the book of Romans, the, the, every Christian in Rome has a duty and an obligation to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now what does that mean when he says in subjection? Or to be subject to those in authority over us? Well, it's often assumed by many uh, simply means to obey. You might even find some commentaries to say things such as civil power must be obeyed or uh, obedience to the government for the Christian is a duty. Uh, some commentators have taught what the passage is teaching is absolute, unconditional obedience to those in authority over us. So the question is, does the phrase in subjection actually mean that? Does it mean absolute, uh, uh, unconditional obedience to the authorities? Well, the, the Greek word that we render in the English phrase, be in subjection, is a word, hupotasso. And hupotasso is a military term. It literally means to line up under. Uh, to place in rank order or, or, or to subordinate to. It was a word that, again, was originally used in military to arrange soldiers in order under a general and then uh, subject them to his commands. Kind of like they're all lined up in the parade, right, awaiting the orders, and they're, they're in a state of subordination, subject to the orders of the commander. Hupatasso is also used to describe the arrangement of military implements in battle in order that the army might carry out effective a war in a, in a logical, uh, a logistical, logical term. The non-military usage of the word uh, described the voluntary attitude of giving in or cooperating or assuming responsibility and carrying out a burden. So hupotasso means to submit, right? In subjection or to submit, uh, to yield to governing authorities in the context. Uh, stated another way, it, it means a voluntarily placing yourself under the authority of someone else, a voluntary following the direction of those in authority over you. But submission is not the same as obedience. Right? There's at least three other Greek words that uh, specifically mean obey uh, that are used by Paul in the New Testament, that, but he didn't use those words here. Instead, he chose to use a particular word that he uses over 30 times in the New Testament 
that, uh, that uh, sometimes has a suggestion of obedience, but most times that's the, not the predominant view of the word. Now, obedience deals with performance. You're told to do something and you have to do it, right? You either do it or you don't. Obedience deals with performance. So you're either obedient or you're disobedient. But submission has to do with what? The heart, right? Submission has to do with the heart. Submission is a heart attitude. Submission is a proper heart attitude towards those who are over you. And, and this distinction, I think, is vital because in the Christian life, the reality is there may be a time when you're not able to obey those who are in authority over us. But you can always have a heart attitude of submission. In fact, as believers, we're commanded to have a heart attitude of submission. Because when we have a heart attitude of biblical submission, we're acknowledging the fact that God is sovereign over the governing authorities. And if we understand authority comes from him, that there's no authority except from him, given by him, then biblical submission is believing that God is able to accomplish his will through whomever he may have placed in a position of power and authority. Biblical submission means that we understand that God is sovereign, not men. Biblical submission, again, forces us to place our attention on God and not on the human ruler who is over us. Understanding that that human ruler, whatever they are or whoever they are, the authority they have is not them acting on their own, but they're acting as instruments in the hands of God, for he alone is the sovereign. Now, I'm not saying that God is not going to punish uh, wicked evil men or wicked evil rulers. He does that. But again, the history of the Bible is full of God using wicked rulers for the good of his people. And when it comes to the issue of authority and government, we all tend to forget the fact that God is sovereign and we begin to look at the person who's in charge and we tend to become bitter and angry and complain. If we just kept the proper biblical perspective, a proper biblical understanding that authority is from God, then we won't become bitter, but rather we'll have the right perspective on the way things are. Now, Joseph is a classic example uh, in the Old Testament, a guy who could have become, could have become tremendously bitter, right? Now, you stop and look at his life, and uh, certainly he was mistreated by his brothers and lied about and uh, uh, slandered falsely, thrown into prison, then forgotten. But when the entire event came to conclusion, when he was reunited with his brothers, and, and, and who started the whole event by, by selling him into slavery, he had the right divine perspective on the entire situation. He demonstrated a heart attitude that demonstrated he understood divine sovereignty. Genesis 50:20. He said, "As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result as a preserver or to preserve uh, many people alive." Again, Joseph, he's uh, falsely thrown into prison, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, lied about. Uh, but God is sovereign. It was the sovereign God who put him there. It's the sovereign God who put him in the right place at the right time to rescue the nation of Israel from the famine that was coming. And in doing so, rescue the line from which the Messiah would come to the world. We don't know how God is working in the world. We don't know how God is using the events of the world. We don't know how God is using wicked rulers, but we do know that God is in charge. And knowing that, and knowing that God works all things out for his glory and for the best of his people, our duty is not to figure things out. Our duty is to submit. Paul says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Again, to those in authority over us. So again, the word hupotasso, right? In subjection to, it's a passive present imperative. Uh, uh, present tense uh, voice, uh, uh, present passive imperative. Uh, the present tense just means it's ongoing action. This is presently, currently happening. We just keep this attitude. Passive uh, is a voluntary subjection of ourself, our will to the will of another. And then it's an imperative. It's the mood of, of command. This is what God's commanding. So what that means in the Roman, for the Roman Christians, again, all Christians for that matter, is to be presently, continually, actively, voluntarily subjecting or placing ourselves under the authority of those over us. We're to submit ourselves to them and not necessarily to the person or because of the person, 
uh, in and of themselves. We submit to them. Uh, by, by submitting to them or subjecting ourselves to them, we're really subjecting ourselves to the authority over them. And in fact, uh, we're actually honoring God, right? God has placed them, good ruler, bad ruler, it's irrelevant. We're, we're really honoring God. We're obeying God in his word. So again, the idea of biblical subjection, the, the idea of biblical submission is really a proper heart attitude of the Christian, a proper attitude that all Christians should have to those in authority everywhere, whether it be government officials or, or those uh, who, whom we work for, right, as our employers, maybe even in the church, right? God has put in place elders and deacons in the body of Christ to govern and oversee it, serve it. So God has ordained authority. There's no authority except that comes from him. And whatever authority there is, he's the one who's established it. So when we resist authority, we're opposing God himself. And again, obedience deals with performance. Submission or subjection deals with the heart attitude of the Christian. And the Christian's character, again, is not to assert himself to make room for others. That's what Christ did. To prefer others, to give a, 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 a priority to others, uh, as it were. So that's the real idea behind this idea of being subjection to. We're, we're simply recognize the authority over us are, are representatives of God. We recognize they're in that position because God has placed them there. Therefore, we honor them. We respect them because God has placed them there. We put ourselves under them, submit ourselves to them. And as we're submitting ourselves to them, we're really submitting ourselves to the ultimate sovereign, that, that being God himself. Now, one old commentary reads like this. It says, compare a river that keeps its bounds to one that overflows its banks. Men must not forget that all well-ordered societies exist only by subjection. For every community be kept in or for every community to be kept in order, they must have a recognized head, one who shall be allowed to rule either by his own will or the organized will of the whole, since man in his most savage state has some uh, recognized chief, right? That, that's a pretty good picture. Uh, the bank, the river bank keeps the river in the bounds. When it goes over, it becomes a problem, right? And, and what do we see in, 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 the, in our society? An absolute breakdown of what? Everything. A breakdown of order, right? Because nobody, nobody places themselves in subjection <coughs> to anyone. Everybody does what's right in their own mind. And because of that, chaos breaks, <coughs> excuse me, chaos breaks forward. It's like a, a river overflowing the banks. Again, Paul says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authority. So, so we have to rid ourselves of that. We have to understand that, uh, that, that uh, the command, but then rid ourselves that the apostle is binding us to absolute obedi obedience. O obedience is a performance. Uh, subjection is a hard attitude, right? He's not saying that as a believer, we have to automatically do absolutely everything that those in authority tell us to do. Nero's office was certainly ordained by God, but Nero's actions weren't, right? We got that? Nero's office was ordained by God, but his actions were not. Nero's actions were his own. They were the actions of a, a wicked man, a perverted man. His government or the government uh, 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 surrounding the time, the part writing this letter surrounding the time in which the early church lived was thoroughly pagan, thoroughly immoral, thoroughly debased, despotic, oppressive, uh, unjust and brutal, and any other adjective you want to throw in there, right? It was a bad place. Bad place, bad rulers. So are we to obey government? Are we to obey authority over us? Well, the initial answer would be yes, uh, because God has placed a government there for our good. Rulers, it says verse 3, rulers are not a cause for fear, uh, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no uh, uh, fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have the praise of the same, for it is a minister of God for you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon one who practices evil. So again, all well-ordered societies only exist as subjection is practiced. Every community that is kept in order has to have a recognized head. There has to be somebody who's allowed to rule, either again by the will or, uh, uh, or either by his own will or by the organized will of, uh, of the whole. But are we to obey absolutely everything a government says we should do? Well, the answer to that is no. Are we to be subjection? Yes. Are we to obey? Well, to the best we can, yes, but absolutely everything. No. How do you get that? <clears throat> it's what Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 20, or 20, Matthew 22, verse 21. 
He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render unto God the things that are God's, right? He's saying, look, we live in two kingdoms. As a believer, we live in two kingdoms, <clears throat> right? There are things that belong to Caesar <clears throat> and things that belong to God. So we are called as the citizens of two kingdoms to really uh, obey, to put in submission to those earthly rulers, but we're called to obey the God who's the ruler of the ultimate kingdom uh, first and foremost. Again, we subject ourselves to earthly rulers, but we obey God first and foremost. So there may be times in our obedience to God that we must disobey men even though uh, in our refusal to, uh, uh, oh, in our refusal to uh, uh, obey the government, our heart attitude is one uh, of subjection. Right? There may be times when we just can't obey. Uh, go again to, the, to Daniel, right? the book of Daniel. First time the fellows are, are brought before the uh, king's ruler, they say, look, we got some stuff you'd like to eat. Uh, and uh, Daniel and his friends didn't immediately say pound sand. We're not doing it. We're just going to rise up in rebellion. You can't make us do anything. They didn't say that. They said, look, this is what we'd prefer to eat. Why don't we try a little experiment? And if this goes well, you know, we can talk about it in, in, in a week or 10 days, right? And so they gave an option. They just didn't uh, uh, um, uh, start a confrontation. The next time when they were commanded to bow down, they said what? Can't comply. Sorry, we'd like to, but we can't. We're not going to worship this false idol. You know, well, then we're going to throw you into fire. Well, you, you do whatever you need to do. Uh, we're okay with that. And I think as Christians, we need to have that attitude that if we disobey the government, then we need to take the responsibility of whatever the punishment might be. But we're not going to bow down. And you could throw us in the fire, but our God is able to rescue us if he desires to do so. And even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down. Still respectful. Didn't say pound sand. Didn't say, hey, let's go start a riot on the street so we can overturn these bad rules that are against us. Didn't do that. Third time in Daniel's life, he's commanded not to pray, and what does he do? Opens the window so everybody can see that he's praying. He's a higher authority. We're life in two kingdoms. We've got to think wisely about the issue. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar and things that are God uh, unto God, right? So when is it proper to disobey governing authorities? Now, we're going to have to look at that issue later. It's a very uh, involved one, and, and honestly, as much time as we spent, we only just got started, Right? We're just li living in times where I think we desperately have to think biblically, have a biblical theology of government. What's the role of government? What's our responsibility to it? Yeah, how can we honor the king at the same time make sure that we're most importantly honoring the king of kings? Because I think issues are going to come flying at us fast and furious as, again, there's a breakdown in the culture and absolutely by the culture, no regard whatsoever for the church, Right? doesn't alleviate their responsibility. God's used wicked rulers in the history of the church of the past to, to carry out his duty. So we're not going to live in fear, but we need to think biblically. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this kind of quick look, just starting here into Romans uh, 13. Uh, we're thankful for your word that gives us clarity, uh, gives us understanding of how we should act uh, in a fallen world uh, that doesn't know you, how we should act and react to government, how we should deal with everybody around us. And we're thankful for that because you want us to represent you well in this world. We are your representatives and we want to represent you well. So give us biblical wisdom to apply uh, truth. Once we understand truth, apply it into very, uh, a variety of aspects uh, in our life, in, uh, in the lives of those around us. Thank you for this day of uh, worship together, morning and evening, in the time we've opened your word. We pray you impress your truth to our heart. In Christ's name, amen.